Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Wittavine. It's good to be here with you once again. This is episode number 111, part six of our series, Eschatology 101. And in this episode, I'm going to be following up from where we left off last week in the book of Revelation. And this week, we're going to begin by looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter six. And for those of you who are watching on Rumble, I'm going to open up the Bible. And for those of you who are listening, you can listen along or you can look up in your own Bible to to follow along with where we're going. But we're going to start off with Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. So last week we looked at Revelation 4 and 5 and the introduction to God's heavenly throne room and uh, the search for someone who was worthy to open up the scroll. And we talked about what that scroll represents, what that scroll actually is. And the scroll being a covenant document, being an official document, marking the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. So, so the, the absolute end of the old and the beginning inauguration of the new. And so at we we finished with the end of Revelation 5. The lamb is found worthy to open the scroll. And now the lamb begins to open the seven seals. And so the scroll is not open. The scroll is not open until the seventh seal is open because as long as there's a seal remaining, uh, the book or the scroll cannot be opened. So that's that's the process that's going on here. And the, and the four horsemen uh, are... The or who appears first when the first seals are opened. So we're going to take a look, beginning, as I mentioned, beginning at Revelation 6, verse 1, where we read this. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And I'm just going to take a look at the four horses, the four horsemen, the four horses all together, and then we'll we'll go over them individually because I think it's it's important to to go over them as a unity, and not uh, not divide them up or or separate them because I think it's it's easier to understand if we look at all four of them together. In verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "Come," and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So that's the second horse, the second horseman, the red horse. Revelation 6, verse 5, Then he opened the third seal, or when he opened the the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So that's the third horse, the black horse, the third horseman. Then verse seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And uh, the word pale here, uh, is also uh, is the word that means green, actually. So it's a, a green horse. Uh, we commonly think of it as the pale horse. Perhaps uh, you've seen the, the the Clint Eastwood movie Pale Rider, which uses uh, which quotes this verse. 
so there's the pale horse, commonly known as the pale horse, but actually the green horse, as I said. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, obvious, the obvious question here is, who are these horsemen? What do these horsemen represent? And what's happening here as the first four seals of the book are opened? Now, the first thing I want to emphasize is the fact that I already mentioned is that this is not, what we're coming across here, is not the content of the actual book itself. What's happening here is the process in the opening up of the book. So we're not at the climactic sequence yet, but we're at the events that are leading up to the climax. And as I've argued before, the climax is the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the, and the, the destruction of the temple, the definitive end of the old order and the definitive beginning of the new, or the, 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 the definitive beginning of the new covenant, we could say. So that's what's happening here. So in, in this process... Then, reading this in context, we're looking at events that are leading up to what's going to happen when the scroll is completely opened. So, thinking of how Revelation deals with, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, things that are going to happen soon, these are events that are going to be fulfilled in the first century, leading up to the climactic events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. The first seal is opened, and there, there's the rider on the white horse. Now, white symbolizes purity, generally, in Scripture. Uh, and the rider has a bow. And this is, this is an odd kind of image, because normally uh, there are swords involved, but here's a bow. And he has a crown. A crown is given to him. And he comes out conquering and to conquer. So who is this rider on the white horse, the first horseman of the apocalypse? Now, these, when you look at commonly held interpretations or, or the various speculations about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the answers vary widely. Now, these horsemen have been personified as, as death, famine, war, and conquest. So, They've been associated with various things. So, so people have said the red horse is communism. Well, why is the red horse communism? Well, because communism is represented by the color red. Uh, the old Soviet Union had a red flag. The, the Chinese have a red flag. Uh, red, it's called red China. So red communism. And then the white horse. Some have said uh, that the white horse represents the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, other and, and then the black horse. Some have said that the, the black horse represents capitalism and Islam represent, is represented by the green horse or the, the pale horse. Well, those, those arguments are based on, first of all, faulty presuppositions about the fulfillment of Revelation and when Revelation, the prophecy of Revelation, was uh, actually fulfilled. And that's, that's a constant refrain, as we'll see in, in subsequent episodes as well, where events and symbols and images of Revelation are interpreted as if they speak about 
things that are happening in the interpreter's own historical context. And the same thing happens here. But the first question we need to answer is, and we need to ask and answer, is what would the first readers and the first hearers have thought when they heard, when they read the message of Revelation? What would this have meant for them? This, this book was meant to be a, an encouragement and a challenge to God's people in the first century, the seven churches in Asia Minor. So what would it have meant for them? What comfort, what encouragement, what challenge would it have been for them to say, well, this, this represents Islam, which is six, five centuries in our future, or this represents the Roman Catholic Church, or this represents Red China or Russia, centuries in their future. Well, it it doesn't make sense for these images to stand for things that are in our future or are especially in our immediate historical context in our present. So we're looking at things that were going to happen soon, as John said in the first uh, in the first chapter, things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 were going to uh, happen befall that generation. And so with that in mind, we use that as the lens through which we look at these four horsemen. So the first horseman on the white horse uh, with a crown conquering and uh, going out conquering and to conquer. Well, I believe that this is a a representation of the gospel going out into the world. And I'll I'll explain why that is. So, So what we have is the gospel going out into the world. Now this this can't be some some have said this is a representation of Christ. Well, that would that would mean the lamb is sending himself out into the world. But I believe it's a representation more of those who follow Christ who are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Well, because they have a crown that that goes back to the the crown, the royalty imagery that we've already come across in Revelation. So there's that crown, there's that, that association with the kingdom. There's a bow, which is associated, interestingly, the, the, the previous mention of a bow is the, the rainbow around the throne. And that, that bow or rainbow imagery goes back to the Old Testament and God's covenant with all, with all of creation. And what's happening, what's going to happen here is kind of a decreation. So the bow is taken down and this rider carries the bow, has a crown, has a white horse, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. So this is the gospel message going out in the first century to conquer. But then the second seal is opened and there is this second living creature which says, come calls out the horseman on the red horse. Now red being the color of blood, being the color of fire, having those kinds of connotations in Scripture. So remember, that's what we always need to look at. We we need to look at how these symbols are used in Scripture, how how they're used in God's Word, and not think, oh, red, well, that's a red flag. Uh, That must be China or the USSR. Or an eagle, well, an eagle, that must stand for the United States because the eagle is one of the symbols of the United States. Now, the first place we need to look is to Scripture. And Scripture uh, has inferences, references to the color red, representing blood, representing uh, fire, representing violence in that way. 
So what happens when this red, red horse uh, goes out with its rider? Well, its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth, peace from the, again, peace from the land, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So the rider on a red horse has a great sword, and he's permitted to take peace from the earth. So he's not causing war, but he's, but he's removing uh, a hand that is preventing the outbreak of war or strife or division. So when we connect the second horse with the first horse, the first horse being the gospel going out into the world, what's the result of the gospel going out into the world? Well, Jesus himself said that uh, he had not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword, that there would be division within families, there would be division among brothers and sisters, fathers against children. As a result of the going out of the gospel, conquering and to conquer, peace is taken away. And we see that in Acts, we see that in, well, we see that right away in, in, uh, in the ministry of Jesus during his incarnation, his earthly ministry, we see the division that immediately uh, began to spring forth because a result of his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and his, his inauguration of the kingdom uh, during his ministry, we see right away that division springing up as a result of the proclamation of the gospel, which goes forth to conquer. So peace is taken from the land. Brothers are divided against each other. The synagogue of Satan persecutes the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. And people like Paul, uh, before his conversion, go out breathing threats and violence against the brothers and going even outside of the bounds of Judea, Jerusalem, going to Damascus in order to persecute the followers of the way of Jesus Christ. So this is what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed, the rider on the white horse, and then the rider on the red horse takes away peace from the land, and there's division, and there's murder, and there's persecution. And then the third horse, the black horse. And this, this gets a little bit more complex. Well, it's all complex, but this gets a little bit more convoluted, perhaps we could say, because there's some confusion about the third horse and the fourth horse. Some, some people uh, look at this and say, well, this is a famine. Well, what we see with the fourth horse, the fourth horseman, the pale horse, is sword and famine and pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth. Well, here we have a certain kind of famine, but it's not a complete famine. And what there's a voice that, that calls out. So the rider has a pair of scales in his hand, the rider on the black horse. So scales, obviously, are used for measurement or, ju or judgment or could, could even say division. And then the voice in the midst of the four living creatures says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And in order to understand what that is, so a day's wages would go for a quart of wheat or a day's wages would go for three quarts of barley. So in a way, it seems like kind of a famine because a day's wages will go to buy one day's supply of food with nothing extra left over. So people, uh, according to this imagery, people are going to be buying their, their daily food with their entire day's wages. 
So they're they're at, at the very least their situation is uh, or or what they what they're able to purchase is very much limited. But then it says, "Do not harm the oil and wine." And I believe that this this third horse, it, it, if we don't we we need to not think of it in terms of a physical famine because the physical famine comes with the fourth fourth horseman, but it's more of a spiritual famine. So what's touched? Well, the the the, the wheat and the barley are touched, but the oil and wine are not touched. And so we need to think about that that symbolism. And we also need to, again, connect this with earlier passages in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we read about a famine coming of the Word of God. So there will will come a day when there will be this famine for the Word of God. And we actually read about this in the prophecies of Amos in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. In Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, it says, Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So there's a famine of of sorts, a spiritual famine, a famine for the word. They They will look for it, but they won't find it. So that's Amos 8, 11, and 12. And then also in Isaiah chapter 8, the verses 20, and 20 to 22, where it says, If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so if we connect that with what happens during the ministry of the Lord Jesus and what he actually says, we can see a connection with this in John chapter 5. In John 5, verses 38 to 40. He says, he says this to the Pharisees. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so these people who rejected the Lord Jesus and who hardened themselves in their rejection of him, they experienced this famine of the word. They had the word, but they didn't get anything out of it because they refused to submit themselves to the word. And so what ends up happening is they have, they have hardened themselves against the good news of the kingdom of, of God. They have, they have hardened their hearts against that. And just like Pharaoh, their God in turn uh, provokes or, or, or leads them into this situation where there is a famine. So they're not going to see because they have refused to see. But at the same time, so there's a famine of the word, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. So there, there's, a, there's another, uh, there's a contrast there. Those who recognized the Lord Jesus as God's Messiah, as the anointed one, uh, they would receive God's blessings. 
So oil and wine are signs of blessing. They're, they're, they're also associated with the new covenant, the wine, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the wine of the Lord's Supper, the, the wine which is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. So the oil of anointing and the wine are not harmed. So what, what is harm? What, what happens here? There's a famine of God's word. But the oil and the wine, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who serve him, uh, who recognize in him the fulfillment of the scriptures, then th- those are not harmed. But the famine comes to those who reject the Lord Jesus and, and, and his kingdom. So that leads us to the fourth horse. So this is the pale horse or the green horse. Its rider's name is Death and Hades follows him. And they, Death and Hades, are given authority over a quarter of, of the earth again a quarter of the land again that's it's it's important for us to see here that this is speaking specifically about the land the land of of israel of palestine uh, the promised land to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth again and I know that I'm repeating a lot of things, but I think it's important to, uh, to emphasize these facts. We read covenantally. We read, it, we read Revelation in the context of all of Scripture. And we look at the connections and we look at how other parts of Scripture are fulfilled or, or how references are made to other parts of Scripture in what we read in Revelation to avoid being led astray and going down all kinds of rabbit trails and and uh, arriving at a lot of very strange conclusions. But what we see here is the beginning of an outpouring of judgment, of covenantal judgment, the covenantal curses. And a, a, a reference, reference to uh, Deuteronomy 28, but also to Leviticus chapter 26, in verses 21 to 26. So Leviticus 26, the verses 21 to 26. And it says there, If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And then elsewhere in in the listing of covenantal curses, there, there is also mention made of the wild beasts of the land once again uh, gaining in numbers and causing fear uh, on the highways and byways and in the countryside. So, so death and Hades, the grave, Hades being the grave, uh, follow the, the rider on the pale horse. They have authority over a quarter of the land. And we'll see later on that, that this is only, only the beginning because in subsequent judgments, that one quarter turns into one third. So the judgment is intensifying. Right now, at this point 
in the opening of the seals, in the preparation for the final opening of the book, there is still time and opportunity for repentance. So that this, this pestilence, sword, famine, wild beasts are given authority over only a quarter of the land. So people are given the opportunity to see this, to see what's happening and say, this is exactly what, uh, these are the, the, the curses of the covenant that are being uh, imposed or, or being poured out upon the land. We now have this opportunity to repent, to open our eyes, to follow the Lord Jesus, and to recognize in him the fulfillment of God's word, and that he is the Son of God, and that he is the Savior, and that he is the Lord. So there's that opportunity, because it's, it's, it's a third. So God, even in these last steps of judgment, God continues to show patience, and he continues to uh, allow time for his old covenant people to turn away from their rebellion and the hardness of their hearts. So they haven't been completely hardened yet. They're hardening themselves in their sins. Uh, they and, and their leaders are leading them astray. Their shepherds are, are leading them to their own destruction. But there's still an opportunity for repentance. And so that's what we see here. That's what I argue that, we, that and I believe we see here in these four horsemen. We don't see communist China. We don't see uh, any other, we don't see the Islam coming to the fore here or, or whatever kinds of interpretations are given of the four horsemen. What we see here is the gospel going out, conquering and to conquer the sword of the spirit, the two-edged sword, which is the word of God going out uh, to conquer uh, and the rider on the white horse doing that. So the gospel goes out, the gospel of the kingdom, then there's a response to the gospel of the kingdom. What's that response? Well, that response is, as the Lord Jesus had foretold, as had also been foretold at his birth, that this, this child would cause division. That's exactly what happens. The second horse, the red horse, takes peace from the earth so that people slay one another, and he's given a great sword. So there's that division that's caused by the gospel. And that's the kind of division that's, that, that happens each time the gospel goes out. Every time the gospel goes out into a new, new culture, a new country, uh, a new community, even, even uh, to a new family, to a new individual, there, are, there is that division that's caused, that enmity that is rekindled. So that's what's, what, what's happening here with the second horse. And then the third, we have the, the famine of the word of God, but the blessing on those who uh, embrace the new covenant, who are grafted in, who become followers of Jesus Christ, who believe in him. And then the fourth horse, the fourth horseman, uh, the rider's name is Death, Hades follows him. And here we see the beginning of the judgments on the land, which are still... Uh, only affecting a quarter of the land and giving the, the, the people of the land time to turn away from their wickedness and turn to Jesus Christ. So these are the four horsemen. And now I also just want to look at what happens when the fifth seal is opened. So when the fifth seal is opened, when you open the fifth seal, so it's verse 9, Revelation 6, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Again, there's that, that word, the witness, which keeps coming back. So there's, there's this emphasis in Revelation on being a faithful witness. These are the martyrs, and they're under the altar, the souls of these martyrs. And what are they doing? Well, they're crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they're given each, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we have a message here. It's kind of a, some have, have referred to this as kind of a, an interlude, uh, and in, but this is a continuation of the process as we move towards the fulfillment of the outpouring of God's judgment and God's wrath, we see the martyrs, those who had been slain for the cause of the gospel, crying out from the altar, which is, which is outside of the, the heavenly throne room, just the, like the, the altar uh, in, the, in the court of the temple, and their, their souls are crying out for justice, and they're crying out for God's vengeance. So they are not, they have not yet entered the, the, the completeness of their glorified state. And they're waiting for the fulfillment of their number. And their number needs to be fulfilled. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen in Revelation is the, the answering of these prayers. God is going to hear the prayers of the martyrs and he's going to answer them. And I think there's, there's several very important points that, that we need to emphasize here. The, the one point that I want to make is that we, are, we have a number of psalms in the book of Psalms that are psalms that ask for judgment and that, that, come, that we come before God and we pray by using these psalms, we pray that God's justice be done. We pray that his wrath be poured out on those who hate him and those who persecute his people. And there are, there are many Christians who are uncomfortable with this kind of, of song, the imprecatory psalms, they're called, and say, well, this really shouldn't have a place for us as New Covenant believers. We should be willing to forgive as Jesus forgave, etc. But what we see here, specifically in this New Covenant context, are the martyrs, those who had died for the sake of the gospel, crying out for God's justice to be done, for God's wrath to be poured out. So they, they, they refer to God's holiness and his truth. They say that he's the sovereign Lord, the Lord, of, the Lord of hosts. How long? So they're echoing the words of the psalmists before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Showing in this new covenant context that these cries for justice are still very much legitimate forms of prayer for God's people today. And as, we, as we'll see in Revelation, God hears those prayers and he answers them. And, and the outpouring of his wrath in Revelation, and the, the, the revelation of this, is his answer to the prayers of the martyred saints. And then the sixth seal is opened. So that was the fifth seal. Then there's the sixth seal opened. There's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky fall to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanishes like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island is removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, or the kings of the land, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. All of this is reminiscent of Matthew chapter 24 again. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, I've already spoken about the importance of apocalyptic language and the places where we see that that so-called apocalyptic language being used in Scripture. There's this universal language that's being used that, that, that speaks to a kind of undoing of the structures of creation, which has nothing to do with the physical end of the universe or literal fall, stars falling from the sky, or the, the, the sun literally be, being blotted out and the moon literally being turned into blood, uh, any of these things, these are symbols of an overturning of an order. An old order is being overturned. An old power structure is being destroyed. And, and uh, like the stars falling from the sky, the stars representing the leadership structure of a society. As a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And that fig tree imagery, now just think about that, fig trees. Where where do we hear about a fig tree? And if you think about that, and if it reminds you of Jesus cursing a fig tree in the Gospels, immediately uh, or before going into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. So what, what he does in the cleansing of the temple is a uh, an, uh, an an enactment or a a foreshadowing of what would happen when the temple would be cleansed once and for all when it would be destroyed. So he cleanses the te- or he curses the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. He goes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He comes out of Jerusalem. The disciples notice that this fig tree is dead, and. That's the kind of thing that we, that the reference that we need to see here. As the, the stars of the sky fall to earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. So God's vineyard, God's fig tree, has not borne fruit as he wanted it to. And so as Jesus cursed that fig tree, that's exactly what was going to happen to Israel. The sky vanishes like a scroll. The mountains and islands are removed. And then every person from every segment of society or or people from every segment of society, kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave, free, hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks and they seek death. They seek death. They seek that. uh, They they actually enact a stoning of themselves. So they've been stoning the followers of Jesus Christ, like Stephen, the first martyr in Jerusalem. Uh, they've been stoning them, but but here they're actually uh, wanting to be stoned themselves in that generation. So they call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come. So that's the context. Or reading the these first, uh, the opening of the first six seals in their context. And I think there are there are points where interpreters disagree 
on exactly what some of the symbolism means. And I think there are, there are some points where, where things are more clear than they are in other places. But on, a whole, on the whole, what we're seeing here in general terms is what happens in the first, uh, the beginning of the new covenant era, the gospel going out, the gospel causing division, leading to persecution, the first steps of judgment, and then we're, we're, we're introduced to the martyrs under the altar, and the blood of the martyrs is calling out from the ground, we could say, calling out for justice. God's people are calling out for justice, and they have to wait just a little while longer until their number is full. Just as Israel had to wait until the sin of the Amorites was full before they could go into Canaan, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, in the same way, they had to wait until the number of the martyrs was full before the, 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 uh, the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath uh, at this time would happen. So that's Revelation 6, the four horsemen and the prayer of the martyrs. And next time we'll continue with, uh, with this series on uh, Eschatology 101. I'm not sure how many more episodes I'm going to do uh, directly in a row. Uh, I think I'll move on to some other topics, but I will be coming back to this because obviously this is an extended series and there are other things to talk about as well. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I don't have a definitive plan uh, for a number of episodes on eschatology, but uh, we'll take, as a, take it as it comes as I usually do and I usually get... Uh, sidetracked in some way, somewhere along the way, but but the Lord willing, we'll be coming back to this as well in future episodes because this is this is important stuff, when, especially when we think about what's going on currently, the think kind of uh, messages that we're hearing uh, about current events, and any time there's any kind of world crisis, the the issue of eschatology comes to the fore once again, and I think we really need to have a strong. Uh, historical redemptive approach to the book of Revelation in order to understand uh, the eschatological viewpoint that is represented and that is taught in these apocalyptic, so-called apocalyptic books and passages in Scripture. So if you found this helpful, please do pass it on. If you know somebody who is studying eschatology or wanting to know more about eschatology and you, you think that these episodes would be helpful, please do pass on the link to the Rumble channel, then 11.32, or to the podcast in audio format on Apple Podcasts and the other places, Spotify. And also you can check out the website, www.dan1132.com. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me, you can do that using the the contact form on the website once again www.dan1132.com so until next time may may god bless you and may god help us all to be people who in the words of daniel 11 verse 32 are people who first of all know our god and know his word and people who knowing our god stand firm and take action